Hello, I'm Sarah Kapalak and this is In The News, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, do we need a public inquiry into Ireland's COVID-19 response? Last week, the former advisor to the UK Prime Minister, Dominic Cummings, spoke before a parliamentary committee about the early days of the UK's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The truth is that senior ministers, senior officials, senior advisers like me fell disastrously short of the standards that the public has a right to expect. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who, uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that. His pretty shocking claims highlighted the gravity of the decisions that politicians around the world have had to make during this pandemic. Decisions that have directly affected the lives and the deaths of thousands of people. Fintan O'Toole is an opinion writer for the Irish Times. And Fintan, you've spent a lot of time over the past five years watching what's happening in UK politics and writing about Brexit I'm sure last week you were also watching Cummings, the architect of Brexit, answering questions about the UK's COVID response in a very dramatic way. What did you make of what you saw? I wouldn't like to be living in a country where where the only person who's allowed to accuse the Prime Minister of having no ethics is Dominic Cummings. (laughs) You You really reached a pretty bad point, I think. However, you almost have to put that aside a little bit and try to think, okay, what's, what's the guy saying and is it true? Tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. I think most people would agree that the vast majority of what he's saying is backed up by by the evidence. I mean, like in a way, he wasn't really saying anything that wasn't particularly evident from the way in which things were, were unfolding in the UK during all of that period. The problem in this crisis was very much lions led by donkeys over and over again. Cummings said at one stage, you know, that it was kind of scary that someone like him could be in the position of power that he was in. It's completely... Crackers. But also scary that Boris Johnson is in power. And, you know, it's, it sort of reminds us of something that's happened to all of us, which is a sort of normalization of these very abnormal kinds of politics. You know, this sort of right wing populism is itself anarchic. Quote I think we are absolutely fucked. I think this country is heading for a disaster. I think we're going to. A sort of reckless decadent set of attitudes which have no respect for institutions, no respect for for ways of of conducting things with with dignity and honour, and actually no respect for citizens. Did you hear him say, like, the bodies pile high in their thousands or it's only killing 80-year-olds? I heard that in the Prime Minister's study. Okay. um... You know, remember, all of this stuff with Brexit and everything else was supposed to be about returning power to citizens, you know? And, and then you have somebody who's saying, let the bodies pile high, I don't, I don't give a damn about them. You know, uh, like this sort of, the, the absolute lack of concern for what really happens to real people. And unfortunately, we in Ireland are sort of subject to it, you know, because, because what happens there has, a, has an enormous impact on our lives and on the, on the future of the island. And this week you've written a column in which you say that Ireland needs a full public inquiry into how this country has handled COVID-19. And and you also write that this inquiry should start straight away. But people who saw Dominic Cummings speaking last week might well ask, why would we need a spectacle like that here? And aren't we still in the pandemic? Isn't it a bit early to launch a full-blown inquiry into something that is still very much a part of our daily lives? 
you know, from looking at the Dominic Cummings show, and it was a show last week, I, th- I think it should have reminded us of, you know, this is a human tragedy before it's anything else. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with the fact that huge numbers of people have died and that very many of them have died unnecessarily. You know, their lives could have been saved or prolonged. And so any analysis of it, you know, any official accounting for it ha- has to start with human dignity, you know. And looking at the coming spectacle, is that the way in which you want to look at this episode, you know, that it's being used, the deaths of people are being used as part of some sort of incestuous political game? That's one way of doing it. And I think for us in Ireland, it should focus our minds on the fact that we're going to need an official inquiry. Both Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin at different stages have agreed that there's going to need to be an inquiry that looks at, to learn the lessons, you know, what was done properly and what was done badly. But there's been no sense at all as to how are we going to do this. This is crucial, I think, for both practical reasons, right? So, so we need a process which can actually report in a timely way, learn the lessons and apply them, right? So it has to be a practical process. But also there's an issue of principle, right? That it has to be conducted in a decent democratic tone, you know, which is which is not about trying to score points or, you know, trying to haul somebody up and have a bit of fun at their expense. I think we can probably start with the likelihood that mistakes that were made in Ireland were honest mistakes. I'm not saying an inquiry might not discover some bad things, I, but, but so far as we know, we don't have a Boris Johnson who's saying, let the bodies pile high. We don't have a Donald Trump who, you know, as he admitted, was deliberately misleading people about the seriousness of, of, of the virus. We don't have a Bolsonaro. You know, we're thankfully not in that kind of space. We're more in a space of people were trying to do their best under terrible pressure. They made mistakes, but we need to learn from those mistakes. We need to figure out what went wrong, what went right what can be changed, and what can be learned for the future. But why should it start straight away, as you've written? Why not wait a little bit until until the dust settles, until a little bit people have resumed a little bit more to that normality we've all been looking forward to? The real challenge for the state is how to do what it has never really done before, which is to think about a crisis and to analyse and respond to it in a manner that is timely enough that the lessons can be useful, you know, that we can actually start implementing the lessons um, so that we can actually, you know, get better practice and, and try to avoid doing some of these bad things again. The final report of the banking inquiry, how bankers destroyed their own banks and cost the country billions. The banking crisis came to a head in September 2008 when the infamous guarantee was issued by the government. The banking inquiry, which was the state's official inquiry into it, reported in in early 2016. (laughs) So on that same basis, if we were to date the pandemic from from February last year in Ireland, you know, it would be well into 2027 before we would have an inquiry into trying to understand how the state responded and what happened. I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think it will be of any use to us, frankly, you know, to be to be finding these things out in 2027. And this is a real failure in our democracy, you know, that, that sort of gap between something happening and some kind of public accounting for it. Because it means that by the time a report comes out, you know, whatever had to change has probably begun to change anyway, or people are begun to forget. And the, the victims are sort of, 
sidelined and forgotten in this, you know. There's stuff that we need to learn quite quickly, actually, because we have no idea when the next pandemic is coming. We know there will be one. Throughout human history, there have been pandemics. Most scientists would say that there's a very strong chance that because of environmental destruction, because of population growth, because of the way we're treating the world around us, these are going to become much, much more frequent. If you look at what happened in this pandemic, the countries that did best were the ones who had actually taken the previous two pandemics, so the SARS one and then the MERS one. Mostly countries in South Asia, you know, took those pandemics very, very seriously because they were badly hit by them and learned lessons really rapidly and put in place systems. So, if, And this is even like very poor countries like Vietnam, for example, who don't have our fantastic resources, you know. They did brilliantly with COVID-19 because they had systems in place. And they weren't necessarily very expensive systems. They were systems of, of, of public health. You know, how do you, how do you monitor this sort of stuff? How do you stop it? How do you educate people? How do you, how do you respond quickly? So we know that learning from the last pandemic about the next one actually saves lives. You know, it's, it's not an abstract thing. There's nothing in what we might say look like the mistakes that have been made that can't be explained now. And I, I don't think we'd be in a better position to understand that sort of thing in a year or two years' time. The work to set it up should be, should be beginning now so that it could begin hearings in, in September or October. What about the politics of all this? If an inquiry happens now, if Radker and Martin decide to do it now, could it just be open season for criticism of the three-party coalition? And could it spell the end of that coalition if it goes ahead and the three parties are, are stood in the firing line? Yeah, I think that's a kind of crucial question, Sirica, because if that's what it is, then then maybe we'd be better off not doing it. You know, if if if, if it just becomes... You know, here's a way to get at those who happens to be in power. Um, and of course, we had two governments effectively, you know, over, over, over the course of it. And everybody pointing fingers at, at particular politicians for particular reasons. Then I think it becomes actually deeply disrespectful to the people who died and their families. You know, if this is not conducted in a dignified way, which remembers that the point of all of this is really a kind of mourning and a kind of honoring of, of the human tragedy, you know, and what we're trying to understand is is basically how did a lot of people die? If it's not conducted in that spirit and 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 in that way, then I think that would be appalling. Okay, so you're saying we should start this straight away, but do you think our political system is capable of delivering it? And if so, what form should it take? If we established a tribunal of inquiry, surely that would take a long time and cost a huge amount of money. I actually, maybe I'm a stupid optimist after all the years I've been <laughs> writing about these things, but, you know, surely it is possible to set up a process with a, a cross-party committee, small committee, which is chaired by someone who has real respect within, within Parliament. There, there are people, you know, Catherine Murphy comes to mind, for example, as, as, as someone who's across the party lines would be, you know, respected as a serious-minded decent person who's also very capable and very sharp, you know, and I'm just citing her as one example, right? But there, there you know, there, there are people who, who, who could chair a committee. I think it has to be an eructus inquiry because, as I said, the, the other two kinds of inquiries we have just wouldn't work. A, a tribunal of inquiry, which is the sort of public inquiry, they, we know from experience, they become completely dominated by barristers. 
they become phenomenally expensive and they take incredible amounts of time, but also they become adversarial, right? So your barrister is attacking me and my barrister is attacking you, you know, and, and you know, it's not really a fact-finding exercise at the end of the day. We, that, that wouldn't work. But also the, the other one we've used, say, like for the most recently the modern, modern baby home inquiry, they're conducted in private and they produce a report. Now, that, that can work for some things, but we've seen with the modern baby home inquiry, for example, that there's, there's some ways in which they can be extremely problematic as well because the process is, is behind closed doors. And we don't need a behind closed doors process here. I mean, we really need something which is a kind of public accounting. So the only way to do this, I think, is to do it through an eructus inquiry. But it does need to be backed up with huge expertise, right? So it's not fair or right to, to expect TDs or senators to be able to ask some of the questions, right? So that they would need something like a Senate inquiry in in the United States, you know, or a House inquiry in the United States, where where you have the politicians are doing the questioning, but they're backed up by very expert staff who are filtering documents, who are who are you know using very specific skills to hone in on stuff. Um, and I mean, can we do this? I, I, I think we have to be able to do it. I, I, I think it would be an incredibly depressing day for Irish democracy if we said, look, we're actually just incapable of carrying this out. Coming up, what has the pandemic revealed about Ireland? Fintan, when you look back at the last 15 months um, and being here in Ireland during the pandemic, what do you think the Irish government did right? What should they be applauded for when we look at the international stage, what others may have been getting extremely wrong? I think firstly, it's important to say that the initial reaction was reasonably speedy. You know, uh, you you could carp here and there, but, you know, Ireland did lock down pretty early and it locked down pretty comprehensively. And that was crucial. You know, we, we, we know that how people acted within that week or two in mid-March, you know, that was kind of really crucial uh, for the first lockdown. Let's remember that we effectively wiped out the entire first wave. The first wave was gone by midsummer. You know, that was a fantastic achievement by everybody involved, by the medical profession, by government, by Irish society in general, you know. We can then talk about how we screwed that up, but, but you know, it, it was a real achievement. The, the tone, I think, throughout, you know, maybe we shouldn't have to be grateful for this in a democracy, but, you know, there's been nobody malign. Mistakes have been made, but I don't think there's any evidence that any of these mistakes were made, A, for, for, for malign reasons, which they were in other countries, you know, the Trumps, the Bolsonaros, the Johnsons. But also, we do not seem to have had any corruption. Now, we don't know this for absolute certain, but there is no evidence that you had, like, for example, what you had in the UK. I mean, I find it astonishing that people in the UK are tolerating what went on, you know, which was flagrant, open cronyism in things like PPE. I mean, people making millions off the back of a national crisis in which people were dying and exploiting a shortage in the market of protective equipment for frontline health workers. We don't have any evidence that that happened here. And we should be very proud of that because, frankly, we've been a very corrupt country. You know, we, we, we have a huge history of political corruption here. And maybe we were talking about tribunals and all the rest of it, you know, but maybe some of those processes that we've gone through, which were incredibly tedious and expensive and difficult, possibly have changed the culture. You know? and, and if they have, you know, that's a very significant thing in our, in our society. We don't have a Charlie Hawley. We don't have politicians who seem to have been on the take during this crisis. 
should we have to be grateful for that? No, but but uh, but there are good reasons why why we ought to be. But we did get some things wrong in this country, as you've referenced, um, Christmas being one of the obvious ones and the nursing homes. I mean, what do you think were the biggest mistakes in the UK? As you've said, it was Boris Johnson going into lockdown too late, US Trump downplaying the severity of the disease, Bolsonaro just claiming it didn't exist at all. What did we do wrong? There's a couple of things. One is, it sounds very boring. It's a process question. And I wrote about this at the time and I never got a significant answer to it. The government had in place, after like a, a two and a half year preparation process that went through every government department, how do we deal with, with national emergencies? You know, And put in place a whole thing called the National Emergency Coordinating Committee, a whole system for dealing with all of these things specifically including pandemics, right? So the documentation is there, you can see it includes, this is how we're going to deal with a pandemic. Um, and it's a system, right? And it was just ditched. I mean, as soon as the pandemic arrived, it was just put in the bottom drawer and, and never mentioned again. I don't understand. It's one of the things that inquir- we need just to say, like, well, why did you do that? <laughs> you know? um, maybe there's good reasons, but but we've never had them explained to us. A member of that government, which made that decision, you know, subsequently wrote in the Irish Times, oh, maybe it would have been a good idea if we had <laughs> used the system that we had in place. You know, Owen Murphy wrote that in the Irish Times. So w- w- that's a, a thing. But it's quite important because that was about coordination. And coordination is is a key to, you know, the, the way you deal with this stuff because it means, what are the guards doing? What are the, what's the fire brigade doing? What's the, you know, what's the local authorities doing? What, what are the local public health officials? Like, how are they all working together? All that kind of stuff was really important. And I don't think we did very well on a lot of that in, in, in the early stages. And this is probably one of the reasons for the great tragedy of, of this whole episode. Of course, one of the most disturbing aspects of this crisis is that nearly half of all those who've died from COVID-19 here were residents of nursing homes. So how is this happening and what can be... Again, I don't think there was anybody who was being maligned about that. I don't think you had a Boris Johnson saying, let the bodies pile high. You know, I think people were horrified when they realised what was happening. But they were very slow to realise what was happening. And again... You know, you look at the, the the nursing home owners, for example, the private nursing home owners were saying, we're in terrible trouble here. You know, there's, there's, the people are dying in very large numbers. We don't have the PPE. We, the staff are, are, are now falling ill and, and, and can't come into work. You know, there was a real crisis. And that was allowed to get to a point that it should never have reached. We do need to understand why that happened, you know, because... That's not just about processes and procedures, although they are really important. But there's a bigger question here, which is like, why are people who are out of sight out of mind? We have this habit of, and it goes way back through the whole history of the state, industrial schools, Magdalene laundries, mother and baby homes, you know, institutionalized people. And when they're in those institutions, they're not part of us anymore. They're not part of our community. And therefore, we, we don't really have any responsibilities to them. And this really came back to bite us, you know, with, 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 with people whose only crime is, is to be older and to be dependent, you know, and, and being removed from our community. We know, A, that vast majority of older people don't want to be in residential institutions. And we know, B, that it's perfectly possible to keep very large numbers of them in the community with, with, with the appropriate supports. Um, why don't we do this? You know, these are really big questions that need to be addressed. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we do need public inquiry, you know, to think about what are our values and, and how did those values play themselves out in, in relation to this? I want to talk to you about divisions and inequalities during this period. When COVID first hit, we all remember there was a lot of talk about the pandemic becoming the great equaliser and claims that we were all in the same boat. We all understood what was going on. And it became clear very, very quickly this was not the case. 
A lot of people have done fairly okay through the crisis. Some people have benefited hugely from it. But meanwhile, thousands upon thousands of people have lost their jobs and more importantly, have lost their loved ones. So what has COVID-19 shown us about the inequalities that exist in Ireland today? I think, you know, these kinds of emergencies tend not to actually so much change things as highlight them. You know, they're, they're kind of a searchlight, you know, isn't it? And it's worked in two ways. One is it's shown us, I think, a genuine desire for equality. I mean, I, I think most people really felt we are in this together and we, let's try. And there was a great sense of social solidarity, actually, and a real sense of people wanting the common good to prevail. But then, as you say, the realities, you know, that were shown up by this. We have two economies in Ireland, and, and we've had this really for a long time, where there's a, one of them is one of the most globalized high-tech economies in the world, where people are highly educated, highly connected, and one of them isn't. <laughs> one of them is an indigenous economy where a lot of people are still actually very poorly paid and are in very precarious kind of employment. Simple things that became obvious that, that are just absolutely disgraceful. I mean, the lack of mandatory sick pay, for example. That doesn't affect people who can, like me, who can work remotely. But the people who are most vulnerable to COVID are the people who have to do physical jobs, have to go into work, you know, have to work in factories that are poorly ventilated, like meat plants, for example. You know, most of the people working in meat plants are, are workers who are brought in from other countries, whose sense of their own rights are probably often very minimal, who are exploitable, frankly, and who specifically do not have any entitlement to sick pay. And if they keep coming into work even when they're sick, then obviously, you know, you don't need to be an epidemiologist to know what happens. But this is one of the things we really need to look at, you know, is, is, is the interaction between social justice on the one side and public health on, on, on the other side. It also the effects on children are, are, are often forgotten and they're very, very differentiated, you know. A lot of our kids showed fantastic resilience. A lot of families, a lot of parents, you know, have been absolutely brilliant and done an incredible job throughout it in being able to, you know, to keep kids' education going and teachers and schools and all of that done a fantastic job. But it all depends on having digital skills and, and, and connectivity and knowing how to, how to learn online. We, we, have, we have a huge digital divide in, in this country. It's one of the worst in the world. You know, 50% of people in Ireland are among the most digitally highly educated in the world, and the other 50% are among the worst. You know, but then this, is, this is where social division, inequality, is not abstract. Right? And if people don't have the digital skills, then A, they're not going to be able to benefit from working online, but also those kids are not going to be able to benefit from learning online. And one of the things we need to look at you know, is, 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 is what's happened to those kids. How many of them have, have lost out on their education? And how are we going to have an emergency education process you know, to, to help those kids to, to reconnect? Thanks, Fintan. That's it for today. And you can read more of Fintan's work on Brexit, democracies, COVID-19 and so much more on irishtimes.com. Thanks again for listening. In the News will be back in your feed soon.